We are starting our summer sermon series today. At Forest, we have three regular sermon series in a year. Spring, we study gospel. Summer, we study Old Testament. And fall, we come back to New Testament, especially letters. This summer, we will study our third and final series on life of David. Our first series on David was King in the Wilderness. And the second one was the last year's King's Triumphs. And this year, we will study King's Tragedy. Now, why do we study David's life so much? Actually, this is our fourth you know, sermon series. It is because David is the most mentioned name in the Bible, only less than Jesus. Next to Jesus, the name David mentions in the Bible more than anybody. For instance, Jesus is mentioned uh, 1,310 times and David 974 times. It is not Abraham or Moses, but David deeply connects us to Christ. The first sentence of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, introduces Jesus as a son of a David. David ultimately connects us, points us to Christ. So before God revealed his heart through Christ, God actually showed us David, man after his heart. So through David, we know more about God's heart. Before we begin our series on David's tragedy, I want us to know that man after God's heart was not a super holy or ultra-righteous, perfect human being. On the contrary, David was a very human like you and me. In fact, he was a more human than most people. By that I mean he experienced an extreme wide range of human life. Oswald Sanders said about David in this way, that David swung between extremes, but paradoxically evidences abiding stability. The oscillating needle of a pendulum always returned to the center. David somehow is up and down, so always find God. And I think Chuck Swindoll sums up the best. And Chuck Swindoll said, David was a man of a glorious triumph, yet great tragedy. Uniquely gifted, but human to the core. Strong in battle, but weak at home. Why are we drawn to study his life? Because David isn't a polished, marble personality. He is a blood, bones, and breath, sharing our struggles of a spirit and so God loved David not because he was sinless and perfect, but he was seeking God persistently, even in his weaknesses and in spite of his weaknesses. So with that, let's read our text today. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 to 5, and let's read it responsibly. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent to Joab, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonite and besieged the Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is a Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. 
Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent a word to David saying, I'm pregnant. What we just read was called the most shocking scandal in the Old Testament. Up to now, David was so faithful and remarkable. He rarely failed. But today, he did not just fail. He felt so hard, so low, that Campbell Morgan, the pastor of a Westminster Chapel in England, once said, in the whole of Old Testament literature, there is no chapter more tragic or full of a solemn and searching warning than this chapter. And also, so David's fall was so shocking because he's known for daring faith and the unwavering, one unwavering faithfulness. But today's tragic fall is so intensified with the contrast of his greatness. So another biblical commentator named John Woodhouse claims that in biblical history, 2 Samuel 11 is a comparable to Genesis 3, the fall of Adam. 2 Samuel 11 is a turning point of the story of David and his kingdom, just as Genesis 3 was the turning point for human race. And things will never be the same again. So now, how did such a tragic fall happen? One thing I, can be, I am sure of is that David didn't get up that faithful day morning thinking, well, I've been so good so far, and today I feel like committing adultery for change. David did not know that this day was going to be the day that he would regret most for the rest of his life. So what happened? So what happened? What happened to David was that he was seduced seduced in temptation, and he succumbed to, he succumbed to the dynamics of a seduction. That's why I titled today's sermon, Anatomy of Seduction. Anatomy of a Seduction. And I want us to dissect and analyze and examine the dynamics of a seduction today. That is, the movement of a heart that misleads us from God and his purposeful life to evil and his entanglement. I think it's safe for me to assume that all of us face temptation. Not all of our temptations are much sexual like David. Some of us perhaps have issues with greed. Some of us maybe it's a problem with self-pity. Perhaps, you know, perhaps it is the anxiety or some or it can be a pride that we struggle. Whatever temptation we have, in this story, we find tons of spiritual lessons and the wealth of wisdom. Here, in this passage, we see at least three internal heart dynamics. Three internal heart dynamics, dynamics or forces of a seduction that we need to make sure that our hearts are not following and our souls are not influenced by. To study these three dynamics of a seduction, I'm going to use three key words in the story. That is, slipped, stayed, 
and saw. Slipped, stayed, and saw. So first key word is a slipped. This word was not in our text, but actually was implied and described in the book of 2 Samuel up to now. David had been slipping away. Slipping from what? From God's clear commands about being a faithful king. God gave unique warnings and commands to the kings of Israel in Deuteronomy 17. If you look at the Deuteronomy 17, before Israelites entered the promised land, God told Moses, this is how God's kings, the kings of God's people, supposed to behave. And then verse 17, God said, he, the king, must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So God gave a clear command to kings of Israel, don't accumulate woman and wealth. Why? They will mislead you. They will lead the kings astray. And these warnings were exactly reasons later when Solomon became unfaithful to God and ended up being an apostate king. Did you know Solomon left the true faith? I doubt they will see Solomon in heaven. Unfortunately, Solomon was not the first king who broke this command of God. Before Solomon, his father David was acquiring more wives since he became king. According to 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 2 and 5, David has seven wives. And their names are Michael, Ahinoam, Abigail, Makah, Haggis, Abital, and Eglah. You know, David's practice of adding wives showed the lack of romantic restraint and the indulgency of his passions. So this crop seed, sown long ago, grew unchecked long enough, and finally today is bearing a bitter fruit. So Alan Rappes, a pastor who wrote a great book on the classic book on David, Making of a Man of God, studying the life of David, said this, As I think about what happened, of this I'm sure that it did not happen all at once. This matter of Bathsheba was simply climax of something that had been going on in his life for 20 years. So why did David disobey and slip from God's clear command and warnings? Do you know why? It's because that's what all other kings were doing. That's all other kings were doing. David was not the only king who accumulated wives and enlarging his harem. All ancient Near Eastern kings were doing it. In fact, the size of a harem in the Middle East was seen as a common measure for kings, the common, you know, so, you know, yeah, common measure for kings' prosperity and strength. By the way, harem was not, a, not just for pleasure. They were also a practical reason. Because through harem, through harem, there is many concubines and the wives, king could produce many offsprings, that means princes. And with them, he can control and reign his kingdom better and tighter. So in other words, David's slip from God's command means David became desensitized by cultural biases. 
So key word today. The first, you know, dynamic, first, you know, spiritual dynamic of a seduction that we have to be aware is a desensitization. Desensitization. Instead of following God's principles and the promises to, and the purpose to build our life in God's way, the Satan seduces us with the worldly practices and principles. And so desensitization is the first and foremost tactic of Satan. Simply said, everyone is doing it, so don't feel bad about it. No one will judge you. So what are the cultural biases today that desensitize us about God's principles and God's promise for us? Among many cultural biases, I want to point out a few relevant ones to, you know, uh, to us today. And since we have, you know, many young people, some, you know, two of them is related to them. The first one is a notion of a safe sex. What is a safe sex? You know, world tells us, the media, everything, you know, tells us, education, everything tells us, as long as you use a condom, your sex is safe and fine. We must know. STD is not the only danger of an unsafe sex. When we engage premarital sex, there are other dangers. Things like guilt, shame, doubt, lack of confidence in your relationship. That will be as deadly as you know, any other consequence. Sometimes it's more deadly, more damaging than physiological, biological you know, sickness. So I want to tell you very clearly, without, you know, anything, I am, I believe, and I'm determined to preach at Forest that virginity is a great blessing and you can give to your loved one. Yes. Virginity is a more precious gift than any diamond ring and any wedding gift that you bring to your loved ones. You save yourself for your spouse. In contrast, this world despises virginity. You know, I don't know, you heard me before. You know, there is, what is it, HDTV? What do they call those well, first-time home buyers? Property virgin. Property virgin. What do they mean? They e equate ignorance to virginity. They attach the ignorant people to virginity. Let us not be confused. Virgins are innocent. They might be a little bit ignorant, but they are innocents. So don't confuse the innocence with the ignorance. And as a former virgin, I can tell you, it's not easy to be a virgin. It, it requires a great deal of restraint and grace of God. I cannot brag that I married as a virgin, not because I'm a, such a man of self-control. No, it is by grace of God and the wise and, you know, tearful warning of my mother. Yes. Without this grace, I, I would not marry as a virgin. And I, you know what? When we talk about this kind of thing, people say, ah, oh, here comes another purity talk on you know, church. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm talking about life. Ask my wife whether she was happy to marry a virgin boy. I'm happy to marry a virgin girl, even though I'm not the first one she kissed. But she is the first one that I kissed, you know. Now, why do I, you know, 
world despised virgins and saying that no big deal. Bible said very clearly, it's good for you. And then whatever in your past was, I pray, starting today, young people, singles, be a virgin. Counting today, be a virgin. As an old adult, I know and can tell you that sex is not about techniques. It's about caring and intimacy. The real all, the big all, is a oneness in Christ. Amen? The second, you know, also a cultural bias that I want to really bring into the light because I want to be clear. And uh, I think it is a perfect time to say this. I don't know many new people, but uh, as far as all the regular members I know, I know they are not doing this, so I want to say it. Let it out so that at least it will not happen among our people. That is the cohabitation. What is a cohabitation? Bible says living in sin or practically is a marriage. Biblically speaking, you are married. But a lot of people, they are saying, hey, we just, you know, trying to find about each other. What is this? Test drive? It's like leasing a car? Try for a few months or years and then return to the, you know, dealership? Is that a cohabitation? You know, relationship doesn't go like that. Most people cohabitate, I know, because of some practical reasons, and usually it's a finance. And these days, I really feel bad for the young people who are looking for, you know, housing because the economy is wrecked. And, uh, you know, rental, you know, rental and uh, home buy, everything is totally, you know, I, I really bad time economically. But I want to also tell you, your integrity and your obedience, God's promise, is worth some money. And you will have a great testimony for your children in the future. So, cohabitation. Resist the temptation of a cohabitation. How about the uh, you know, older adult? What about the parents raising children in God's way? You know, Bible said very clearly, biblical parenting is about the training a child in the way they, they, he or she should go. Even when he is old, he or she will not depart from it. A lot of suburban parents, like here in Plano or Frisco, we measure our parenting with a kind of a college admission. If my kid goes to, what, Ivy League or Ivy League reject school, then it's a success. I've done ministry at the top schools like UC Berkeley and Stanford. And so-called the cream of crops, they are not cream of crops. You know what? They are as lost, and actually I have a pity for them. You know, real raising children is that our children follow God more than anything. It's not about the going to top schools. And for them to follow God, Bible say, we have to train them in the ways of the Lord. And now the question is, unless parents walk and go in the ways of the Lord, we cannot tell our children to follow God. So parents... Read and make sure your biblical parent, your, your parent, make sure that you measure your parenting according to biblical principles and promises. Now, let me go to the second key word quickly. That is the state. Finally, we come to our text today. Look at the verse 1. In the spring, at the time, 
When kings go off to war, David went sent to Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonite and besieged the Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. There is emphasis in Hebrew text. But David remained or stayed in Jerusalem. The context of today's story is when all kings were fighting in springtime. Back then, you know, uh, they, they don't have like, uh, you know, I mean, food stored. So you have to fight. You have to, depending on uh, annual harvest and farming. So actually, this story is a part of the Second Samuel chapter, chapter 10 to 12. The famous David's, you know, war against the Ammonite and his Syrian, you know, allies. And then if you go back, chapter 10, actually Israel army was winning, but it was winter, so they have to withdraw. Because in springtime, you have to plant the seed. And after you plant the seed, that's when you go out and fight. And uh, while all kings are fighting for their country in springtime, what is uh, David doing? He's relaxing in his palace. And this story, today's this story, illustrates the principle of Galatians 5.16, which says, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And David was where the king, all the king, he supposed to be with his men and Israel's army, he would not fall into this temptation. David did not follow God, and he followed his own flesh as a result. These horrible things happened. You know, while Joab was busy laying siege to Rabbah, we don't, you have to recognize here. Guess what? Another siege was going on. Satan was secretly building siege to David. And David's heart. And Satan's siege prevailed far sooner than Joab's siege. And here, I want us to be very, I, I, I want us to understand this. This is very ironic. Where is David today? He's far from the battle, battle line, right? He's in the palace. Very safe place. Comfortable place. He's wearing pajama. He just took a nap. Siesta. You know, you know siesta? Around the Mediterranean world, that, you know, is a weather, you know, daytime is very hot. Midday to, you know, early afternoon, they all take a nap time. It's called siesta. I'm from South America, so I know. It's a siesta. I enjoy the siesta. But David, far from the, all the dangers, he thinks he's safe. Was he safe? He wasn't safe. He wasn't safe from himself. David wasn't safe from himself. We have to recognize the power that brought David down was not an external enemy. It was himself. It was himself. This really was himself. Wall of Jerusalem was no protection against his own flaws and flesh. So ironical truth of today's story was that David was in the great danger in the safest and most comfortable place. 
So what is a spiritual lesson we learn from there? Let me tell you. I hope you remember this for for, for rest of your life. That is uh, the front line. Front line is the safest place to be in spiritual life. You know, for people of God, front line, the better line is the safest place to be in spiritual life. If you stop serving people, guess what you will serve? You will serve yourself and eventually, maybe your family, but eventually your, your flesh. Safest place in spiritual life is serving other people. You know, looking back my life, there was a period of time that I struggled spiritually. You know when was that time? When I wasn't pastoring a church. When I came to Dallas to teach at DVU, they said the full-time faculty cannot be, you know, pastoring. So, you know, I said, anyway, I took the teaching as a more of a pastoring, you know, extension of a pastoring ministry. So, I said, okay, no problem. I'll devote myself to the students. But later I found that all my actually friends, they are pastoring. But they were doing so-called interim pastoring. They used interim pastoring. And my dean was interiming a church for five years. Do you call that interim pastoring? But anyway, so I'm the dumb one. You know, I was following the, you know, the principle. But point is this. When I was teaching as a professor, I didn't pray for my students. Why? That's my, my job. My job is to teach them well and then grade their, you know, their, 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 their study. That's all. Pastoring, you need to pray. Without praying, you cannot do pastoring. You cannot serve people without praying. So I didn't pray much. I just have a very nominal prayer life. During that time, my spiritual life really struggled. I mean, you know, it's not like I became like a David in this story, but uh, it wasn't much spiritual, vibrant growth. So I want to ask you, what's your goal this summer? What is your goal this summer? You know my goal for this summer? To finish reading Bible through. You know, because we all, you know, beginning of the year, I was so busy planning the beginning of the year and then our first uh, shepherd's retreat. And after shepherd's retreat, we have a Lenten season. You know how crazy Lenten season was for me. So I didn't have actually a chance to read a Bible. So soon as, you know, I came back from Korea after Easter, I decided to start reading the Bible. So here is uh, my encouragement and challenge to you. Anybody beat me before reading the whole Bible before the summer? Call me. I'll buy you lunch. I'll, I'll buy lunch of your choice. Yeah. How much I have read? I'm about 20%. So you can beat me. All right? Now, I want to say this, especially in the summer, I want to tell you on this one. David was a, today, he thought was a very relaxed and he thought, you know, he needed to break from fighting war. And uh, he was uh, walking on this, uh, you know, his rooftop. The, the verb tense of a Hebrew is that uh, actually it's a, uh, imperfect. That means he's kind of walking back and forth, like uh, aimlessly. He's kind of bored. And Billy Graham once said, only those who want everything done for them are bored. And definitely, case in point, was a David on the roof. 
So today, David stayed. You know what it actually means? It means over-relaxation. Over-relaxation. That's the second spiritual you know, dynamics of a seduction that we need to pay. We need to pay attention to. Relaxation is good, but over-relaxation is bad. You know, we definitely need a relaxation and refreshment, but over-relaxation is bad and harmful to our souls, just like overeating is unhealthy. You know, there is a time to relax and time to labor. For David, this is not a time to relax. It's time to fight with his, uh, his, his people, but instead, he withdrew from the front line. So applying this story to us, let me tell you this. This is a summer. Summer is a season of a vacation. I want to say vacation is good. Take a vacation. Please go vacation. Absolutely. I'm going to vacation. You know. When do we go? Uh, anyway, July, July. I think end of the July. We're going on vacation. But what I want us to not to go, don't go to vacation mindset. Don't go vacation mentality. But have a vacation, but don't fall into vacation mindset. What is a vacation mindset? Constantly looking for time and deal to take a break. That is a vacation mindset. Constantly looking for time and deal to take a break. You know, uh, where are they? David, today, he was over-relaxed himself. This is not a time to relax, but he was over-relaxed. And out of this uh, laziness, Satan attacked. Someone said, sloth is a field of sin. And uh, someone, a pastor said, proud man is a Satan's throne. And lazy man in the Satan's pillow. Proud man in Satan's throne. Lazy man is Satan's pillow. Spiritual laziness really produces all kind of uh, surprising, you know, a weed that we suffer. So I pray that we all have a good, refreshing vacation. And uh, actually, I really pray once again. Sometimes, I still, it's a pandemic, it's very precarious, but if you can go vacation more than once, I hope you can go vacation to your mission part, you know, wherever. Go with other people in your house church. Take maybe your VIPs. Build a relationship. Now, let me move on, move on to the final, third one. Third, third one is the third key word in this story is saw. Look at the verse 2, second half. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And woman was a very beautiful. In Hebrew, it's a good to hold, good to see. Good to see her. And David sent someone to find about her. So one thing to be clear is that David was not seeing Bathsheba. It, it's not like David expected or planned to spot a, a naked woman taking bath. David is not a peeping Tom. But David's sin was what? He kept watching her. It's not a first thing, but second, third thing. That's his problem. And so when his sexual appetite aroused, what, did he, what, what, what should he have done? David should have gone to 
his wives. He has seven of them, right? He has, you know, he, he can release his sexual drive legitimately through his wives. But instead, he was going after this particular one. What do we learn from there? If a one woman is not enough, or one man is not enough for you, thousand women and thousand women are not enough for you either. You know, that's what it is. And so, David sent, uh, you know, instead of, uh, instead of releasing his, uh, you know, his need legitimately, he sent a uh, recon team to find about her. And verse 3, the, those men, one of men came back and they said, she is a Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. And IV translation misses here. All the translation like NASB or King James, you know, is, is they, they catch the Hebrew meaning. In the Hebrew text actually say, someone said, is this not Bathsheba? Is this not Bathsheba? What's the difference? First translation is basically reporting. This is a Bathsheba, somebody's daughter, right? But second uh, report is more like rhetorical. Is this not Bathsheba? It implies you know her. She's not a stranger. She's somebody you know. And then tells her, her father, Eliam. Eliam is a, one of the David's mighty men who was recorded in 2 Samuel 23. And uh, you know, grandfather was Epiphopel, who was one of the David's chief counselors. He also mentioned 2 Samuel chapter 23, list of David's mighty men, also later in 2 Samuel chapter 15. So from this, David learned, this girl, this woman, I know her. I, she's from very, you know, close, I mean, she's, she's actually daughter of our friend, my friends, and also upper class. She's a noble family. And then also David heard, she's a wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah, her husband, is not Israelite. He's a Hittite. Hittite is a famous, well-known, ancient, you know, war, uh, warrior kingdom. One time they fought against the Egyptians and, you know, Assyrians and, you know, all, all kinds of people. But this, you know, Hittite, they, he joined Israelite community. Became a follower of Jehovah or Yahweh. And became a warrior for King David. Soon as David heard, he is a wife of Uriah. You know what David thought? I know where Uriah is. He's in the front line. This is my chance. This is my angle. How despicable is this? David, I mean, he clearly knew Bathsheba was not a stranger. She is related to men so close to David. In taking Bathsheba, David is actually betraying Uriah, Eliam, Ephrathah, and every one of them, they are close and important to David. And these men, they believed David. They trusted him. They buried their life for their king. And today, David didn't care about that. He just cared about having her and fulfilling his sexual desire. Do you know what he called that? That he called fixation. Fixation. That is a third word. Third, you know, spiritual dynamics of a seduction that we have to pay attention to. Fixation. 
fixation is their accusing. And the sin, more than anything, is a relational destroyer. Sin cares nothing about oneself and one's flesh. It's so, so self-centered. It's so ruthless. Now, you know, when you have a fixation, do you know what happens? Your reason becomes degenerated. What is a degenerated reason? That is called rationalization. Rationalization. Reason is good, but rationalization is not good. Why? Why? Reason is good because reason is based on reality, objective reality. Meaning a good reason is always, when somebody said, when you hear someone's, you know, uh, 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 rational and you say, oh, that's reasonable. You know what that means? I agree with you. Uh, you know, it's a communal. It's a share. Whereas rationalization is not good because it's not based on objective reality, but it's based on subjective reality. It's about my want, my desire. Rationalization is all about me and my point of view, and we have so many troubled rationalization in our world right now. And when rationalization kicks in, it is ruthless and cold. You know, in this story, we don't hear any conversation between David and Bathsheba. The secular writer of this story presented as a matter-of-fact kind of fashion. David saw, David sent, David slept, you know, Bathsheba returned, and she sent a word. There was, by the way, there is no indication of uh, any kind of uh, resistance from Bathsheba or any kind of coercion from David. So we can fairly assume this is a so-called consensual relationship, or other words, pure adultery. Now, last verse that of today, that Bathsheba sent her messenger to inform David that she is pregnant, implies that David initially thought this relationship is a sort of a one-time, one-night stand. And then she sent the messenger back, and that's what, I'm pregnant. And the David's rationalization completely backfires because now their relationship no longer temporary and one-time event. Now there's a child involved. That means a life and permanent. So David's rationalization and calculation completely shattered. And by the way, that's the next week's lesson. Now, let me, let me, bring, a, uh, let me bring a conclusion. What did you see today? This great King David, boy wonder who beat the Goliath while everyone else was scared to death with the faith in God. And also, singer of Israel, who wrote more psalms than anybody. Yet when David was isolated, what happened? He became nothing or just a prey to Satan. You are isolated from the body of Christ or your own you know, fellow warriors in front line, you also fall like a David. This is why we need to, you know, we emphasize about the house church. We don't fight alone. God never expected us to grow spiritually alone, like lone rangers. God wants us to grow together. That's why, you know, church is called the body, body of Christ. And each one of us is different members of a body of Christ.
I was, I'm kind of debating because I want to always, these days I want to keep my time, but, you know, for illustration, just, just a conclusion. We're going to sing a song, the well-known song, Come Thou Fountain of Every Blessing. The person who wrote this song is a Robert Robinson, born in 1735 in England. To make a long story short, he was a very, uh, after he was converted by the George Whitfield sermon, George Whitfield is a friend of John Wesley, he actually became a great pastor, first in the Baptist church, later in the Methodist church. One time his church was over 1,000 members, but somehow along the way, Robert Robinson, he kind of, uh, we don't know exactly what happened, but he joined the Unitarian church, which is a heretical church, does not believe the, all the biblical truth, and the, his life, spiritual life, totally went wrong direction. And one day, he was riding a stagecoach. In front of him, a young lady, a passenger, fellow passenger, was singing the various hymn that he composed. Come thou fountain of every blessing. To my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of a loudest voice. Teach me some melody or sonnet sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mountain I'm fixed upon, mount of thy redeeming love. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from fold of God. He to rescue me from danger, interpose his precious blood, prone to wonder, Lord. I feel it, prone to live, God I love. Here is my heart, Lord, take and seal it, seal it for thy cause above. You know, after she finished the singing, the young woman asked Robert what he thought about the song. And this is what he said. Madam, I'm the unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give thousand worlds if I could feel if I could feel now as I felt then. Fact that he's longing for that, I see a little glimpse of hope. To Robert Robinson and everyone who feels tempted to live or struggle to seal one's heart with God's love. I have a good news today. You know, the good news is this. There is another king who pursues the daughter of an oath. Bathsheba means actually daughter of an oath. Bat means a daughter. You know, Sheba means oath, daughter of an oath. There is another king who is a pursuing daughter of a covenant. That is a Jesus. And daughter of an oath is pursuing is a church. Look at the Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wife just as a Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with a washing with the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Unlike David who gratified himself through Bathsheba, the daughter of earth, Jesus gave himself for us. A new Bathsheba. While David satisfies his flesh with adultery, Jesus sacrificed his flesh for our atonement. While Bathsheba bathed herself only with the water, Jesus cleansed us with his blood and bathed us by washing through his word. You and I are the bride that Jesus pursues. So, 
Forest Community Church, brothers and sisters, who do you want to sleep with this summer? Who do you want to love, to make a love this summer? Do you want to rest yourself like a David and gratify yourself? Or do you want to rest and restore yourself with a Christ and his word? We have only one summer this year, and I pray let's make a summer 22 another great turning point for the Lord and King Jesus and his love. Let's pray.